again to the good trash genre cast where people gather around a table and discuss the films that you will never discuss in a film studies course and probably after watching would not discuss in the first place and if you did discuss would never do so ever again well they can't all be winners they can't and this week's film is the italian job it is a uh uh documentary instructional video on a particular sex act and uh we'll no is that like a donkey punch <laughs> it's, it's something oh no <laughs> If you, I, Arthur, if you have to ask what an Italian job is, you can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> what page of the Kama Sutra does that fall on? Um, I believe it's um, in the appendices. It's the pa- Tolkien right it's page, it's page 49. It's very complicated. Uh, 49 through 53. <laughs> <laughs> it's very complicated. So, yeah. Uh, not the uh, Unfortunately, not the one with uh, everybody's uh, favorite Cockney actor. Uh, but the other one. The other one, yes, with the less favorite Cockney actor. I don't know. I do like this Cockney I, actor. I do like the Statham. But, uh, I, I like the Statham, but he is he is no he, Michael Caine. He is not. And Have uh, you seen the Michael Caine I original? have seen the Michael Caine original. Well, we'll probably have to talk about that at some point, but yeah, it's the one with Mark Wahlberg. I don't Wahlberg. really remember it much. It wasn't awesome either. Oh, it, was, okay. it was good, but it wasn't awesome. But yeah, it's, it's F. Gary Gray's remake starring uh, old Marky Mark and uh, Charlize Theron and uh, Mos Def. Uh, Seth Green and Jason Statham. Right? Yeah. I got everybody. Yeah, oh, uh, uh, Edward Norton. Norton and Sutherland briefly. Sutherland, yeah, very briefly. So, yeah, you might remember this movie. Uh, it was used to sell a lot of Mini Coopers. And did so quite successfully. Um, so we're going to talk about that film here in a minute. Let's go ahead and identify these voices speaking to your brain. Who are you, sir? I am Arthur Gordon. And unlike you, Dalton, I don't need a guidebook. Then that's oh, totally, totally no. true. Um, to my right, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and five people died from smoking between traffic lights today. That's okay. That's an interesting statistic. My name is Dustin Sells. Put your da- badge on the desk, and I want you off this case. Scott Adkins showing up ever so briefly. And just, yeah, what? Brightening the world. I, it's, it's always fun when you see people who have gone on to have uh, very big roles and things when they were uh, just, you know, taking any gig they could get for money. Yeah, he's in the movie for like five seconds. Could have used more of him. Yeah, yeah, could have used him instead of any number of actors. But anyway. What are you going to do? So we are going to talk about this film, and this is what we do when we do this thing that we do. We do a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema, which is spoiler-free. We do a quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down review from each of the co-hosts, which is also spoiler-free. Then we play a game which may or may not involve a mild spoiler or two of this film or other films in its orbit. And then we get down to business, and that business will be analysis, and then all spoiler bets are off. It's a heist movie. What do you think happens? Anyway, uh, we'll talk. They sit around a diner uh, for 10 minutes talking about tipping. They do. They do. And uh, whether uh, what the exact meaning of like a virgin really is. Yep. Um, a much more interesting. And then they go inside Killian's Murphy, uh, Killian Murphy's head uh, to uh, plant some dreams. They do, um, which is very excellent. Um, and, and Brad Pitt's always eating shrimp every time. Every he's time on he's on screen. But why does the um, you know the bobsled keep spinning at the end? That's what I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know. It just got meta. It has something to do with the cocktail shrimp. I think. I think so too. Low rider, Donnie. Low, Low rider. rider. <laughs> Okay, so um, you might already have an idea where we're going to go with our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. But before we get to that, we do have to hear that synopsis from the voice of the cinema. So, Mr. Arthur Gordon, uh, grace us, if you would, please. After being betrayed and left for dead in Italy, Charlie Croker and his team plan an elaborate gold heist against their former ally. Okay, yeah. That's called a week. Okay, we'll see you all next week. All right, and that's the Italian job. We're done. Uh, so let's talk about this thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Uh, Dalton Stewart, I'm going to go to you first. What do you think about the Italian job? I mean, yeah, we, we've all pretty much laid our cards on the table at this point. Uh, we were excited to do an F. Gary Gray movie. We like other films that he's done, and uh, I think all of us had probably seen this remake before, but it had been a while, and we're like, well, yeah, okay, this will be fine. Unfortunately, it was not. Um I will say that, uh, as I'm sure Arthur and Dustin will also confirm, it's got a great opening heist. It's got a great closing heist. But, yeah, you expect a heist film to have good heists. 
what you also expect is fun connective tissue therein uh, in the interim between stealing things. And that's really the most important part of a heist movie. Do you have a group of characters with a lot of chemistry? Do you have a, an interesting, you know, uh, gig, as it were? Do you have is the planning phase interesting? And that really isn't the case here. This this film wants to be very funny, as most heist a lot of heist films are. They really strongly rely on humor and you know interplay between characters. Uh, and you've got actors here that on paper seem like they would be fun together. Uh, Jason Statham, Seth Green, Mo Steph. I mean, that sounds like a fun cast, right? It does sound Charlize fun. Charlize Theron. Hell, even Marky Mark. I, I will give Mark Wahlberg credit. We ended last week's show picking on him a little bit, but I like Mark Wahlberg in the right roles. Uh, you know, saying he could have stopped 9-11 aside, uh, he's, he's a good actor with the right stuff. I mean, the man carries Boogie Nights for almost three hours. He, he is a good actor, but... Um, he just does not have – he's not on in this film, and I, I can't figure out why, what's missing, what spark he doesn't bring. Um, I, he, he, this film asks him to do a lot that he is not capable of doing, and I, I, that kind of carries down. Like, Seth Green isn't that funny here. Um, he's got no. a couple of moments that aren't horrible, but again, even he seems like he's doing the best he can with what he's got. Uh, to make Jason Statham not charming is very difficult, and this film almost succeeds in doing that, uh, which is shocking. To make Charlize Theron not compelling uh, every second she's on camera, also quite difficult, and uh, this film seems to do it. And the thing that's frustrating for me as I watched The Italian Job is I couldn't quite figure out what it was that wasn't working, uh, and that's kind of the most vexing sort of not good movie, is the one the ones where you can't quite figure out what doesn't work, and by extension, you can't figure out what would have made it better. Um, what here is good and what in here should have been elevated to strengthen the film. Uh, and I think that's the real problem. The film doesn't really have anything to hang its hat on to really elevate the material at all. And that that's the thing that's frustrating. Um, it, it also just feels decidedly early 2000s uh, and, and a lot of structural things. And again, it, that is notably a weird time i think for hollywood cinema kind of a transitionary period as we're you know moving out of the existential uh dramas of the late 90s and into all of the films that go on to remark on the war on terror and the new world that we found ourselves in after 9-11 i think there are a lot of hollywood films from this era that feel like they're missing something but this one especially to me just never really clicks i don't know if it's the bad needle drops i don't know if it's the just kind of lackadaisical plotting structure um but for whatever reason it just never really clicked for me despite there being a lot of pieces that i liked um for instance the the moment where most death and uh mark Wahlberg uh, towards the end of the film are setting up for the big final heist that's a really fun moment um, Seth Green making fun of uh, Handsome Rob's uh, ability to be Handsome Rob is funny. Like, there are little moments throughout. Uh, most Def's joke about uh, dogs and not liking them, great. There, there are little moments throughout that are really quite special. But for every one of those, you have Charlize Theron cracking, practicing cracking a safe in a very nice bra. No one wears underwear that nice by themselves. No one. That's, come on, movie. That's absurd. It's the Fruit of the Loom special, if anything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on. And again, it's just things like that. For every great moment, uh, like I had a bad experience with dogs, you have uh, Ed Norton's bad mustache and bad soul patch. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a very frustrating film. And um, I think as we get further into the episode, hopefully we'll be able to kind of unpack what doesn't work about it. But as of right now, all I can say is, it's kind of boring, and uh, I, I hate to have a, a boring critique like that, but that's where I'm at with it. That's fair. That's fair. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dolenstor. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what would you say in terms of review of The Italian Job 2003? Uh, I'm not going to be any nicer than Dalton. Uh, like you said, it's open strong. It ends strong, but that 90 minutes or so you know, in the middle there is just mostly a miss. There, you know, uh, Sure, it's got a couple of cute moments. Uh, but to me, there are a couple of things here. When I think of Hikes films, I think of a great ensemble. Uh, and it's, you know, there may be a couple of A-listers and then it's usually some character actors or whatever. But it's usually a lot of witty repartee and playing off of each other and uh, really 
over-the-top kind of characterizations that we really get to see, you know, the heavy and the driver and the, you know, whatever it is, those kind of archetypes. Uh, they're all really cartoonish, usually, and a lot of fun. But here it's just very basic. No one really understands how a heist film works. It it, it seems like whoever wrote this script, and, and I've got uh, IMDb credits Donna Powers and Wayne Powers uh, as the writing pair here. And uh, to me, it's it's as if they watched a bunch of heist films and then just took the most basic elements of those and, and put something together. Everything about this is, seems like screenwriting or, or story construction 101. We have the most vanilla uh, mustache twirling villain in Ed Norton and he has a mustache. Yeah. He's got like the, that weird French stereotype mustache uh, that you assert. Yeah, where's Polly Pierhart tied to the railroad tracks? That's <laughs> exactly. what I want to know. Exactly. That's that's exactly right. Right. He's that very cartoonish, over the top uh, villain, and, and all the dialogue here is very uninspired. It's it's very cliche, and and I think this this movie falls apart because of the script. And I don't think anything that uh, the cast could have done or F. Gary Gray could have done to really elevate the material. Because yeah, we, to give credit to F. Gary Gray, it's not like it's poorly shot or anything. No, I mean there there's some actual there's some some camera flourishes that I kind of like. Yeah, I think the shooting of those driving scenes is really impressive. It is, but I, it bums me out to have a ta- act, actor that talented. And you're right. I think that's way it's the characters right uh, that really elevate a heist movie. And it's not that the actors here are bad. It's just I don't know that they have characters to work with. They just yeah, it's it's terrible characterization on the scripts part i think and uh seth green character is a creep and really yeah icky and uh-huh they give him some 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 lines of dialogue that have aged very poorly in yeah. the, the intervening 15 years I, I will say most def is inspired casting i like seeing him here yeah uh and i love jason statham i, I think he's a blast but yeah everybody him and Charlie Theron definitely both feel very wasted here. And I, this is before Monster, I believe. So it's before mm-hmm. Charlize really hit her stride uh, to show what she's truly capable of. But even here, I, I think, you know, there were there were glimmers of something better. Uh, but nobody could make this work, I don't think. And, and I think it all falls back to the script is, is where I'd land. And it's trash. It is garbage. Spoiler alert, it's trash. Uh, and... Um, Probably the front runner for my Hebrew Hammer. I don't know that I've had one this year, but I, I think this is the front runner. Uh, it's pretty bad. Yeah. So that's I'm not a fan. Uh, I'm sorry that I suggested this movie for us to watch. Um, but hey, they can't all be good. They can't all go on the shelf, and, and we need that kind of diversity here to make things fun because we try to have conversations about all the movies, whether they're good or bad. Do you hear how Arthur apologized and then excused himself just now? That's a better apology than I gave when I made us do Running Scared. <laughs> Uh, so hey, running scared led to some great dialogue. And you know what? That's the thing. I almost wish this movie were worse. I wish it were as so bad as running scared. Exactly. Yeah. And that's man. I had totally forgotten to talk about Seth Green, Arthur. Thank you for reminding me of that. That line about uh, t- illegally wiretapping his ex girlfriend's phone. Yeah. Or, or, or having speakers that'll blow a girl's clothes off. Yeah. yeah. No. And gross. then they play it out. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah. It's not okay. It's not cool. All right, well, thank you very much for that, uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I have yet to forgive you, but we'll work on that later. Yes, I don't like this movie very much either, and the reason why is exactly what Arthur was pointing towards with the script. It is so paint-by-numbers. What we need is a crew for a heist. Let's give them all a job. Let's give them all some sort of character tick. Okay, done. Let's give some sort of motivation for this, you know, the dead uh, mentor patriarch. You know, let's, let's seek revenge, you know, which is a, which is a change from the Italian job, the uh, original uh, version it does not have that sort of revenge plot going through it um so you know you do those kinds of things and then just be as basic as possible in every other way i mean f f, f, f gary gray i'm gonna call him f murray abraham here in a minute i just know <laughs> um f gary gray uh does does a great job shooting those initial uh set pieces and uh it, it's okay for a heist movie to be stringing together a set of set pieces but what this movie needs if it's going to be this thin on character is two additional minor set pieces in the middle yeah and uh, those uh you know failed heists or heists to get some sort of material that you need in order to achieve uh, the thing, that sort of stuff. Needed. The most exciting failed heist we have in this film is foiled because of a fucking dinner, dinner party. party next door. <laughs> yeah. 
It's and, bad. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, th- there needs to be much more in terms of that if you're going to be that thin in terms of characters. And so, and as a result, because it is just sort of them talking and then, you know, making arrangements and those kind of things, introducing new characters uh, and some, you know, plotty kind of things that might come back for the end, uh, introduce those things, and which are telegraphed like 70,000 miles ahead of time. Once you do that, I mean, there is no... There is no surprise. There is really no tension. You know no. what's going to happen. You know how this is going to go down. And until it gets shooty, shooty, chasey, chasey, run fasty, fast, it's not very much fun. It's it's boring. An action movie should never, ever be boring. It's a cardinal sin. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, what, two hours or an hour and 15 It's right minutes. at two almost. Yeah, right yeah. at two hours. And there is a solid, solid half hours of action movie. But that's a full other movie, 90 minutes, that is just a character drama without characters and without drama. Uh, and so, you know, I don't even know what that is if you have a character drama without characters or drama. You just have celluloid. Well, if A24 makes it, then uh, film Twitter loves it. That's true. Just automatically. I mean, it does. <laughs> but credit where credit's due, it's usually worth loving. That's and true. it's interesting for reasons, and this doesn't have reasons or interest. I mean, even the bad A24 is something going oh, on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's junk, and I am with you all. So there you go, dear listener. Our biases are con. Seriously, con. And, uh, con? Yeah. No, and- I wish there was a con in this movie because all the con film. All the heist movies I can think of with a con in them are great. Thief, Ocean's Eleven. Con Air. Oh, see? (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying. We could have, yeah. Many of the things could have happened. Give me a con, Scott, or James. Either would would have been fine. (laughs) Both. Both. Oh. Mercy. Mama, have, have we not gotten that movie? Uh, so anyway, so that's what's going to be coming on down the pike for you. But before we get into the further bits of business that we have, um, we need to talk about um, how we can have the conversation with you all via social media. Dalton, say the words. Uh, hi. Welcome again to the part of the show where I try to gauge how bored Arthur and Dustin are uh, to let me know how much more quickly I need to wrap this up. It's social media time. It's plugs time. It's time for me Hey, hey, Dad. Can, huh? Hey, Kate, Dad, can you not? Twitter talk brought to you by the Italian job. And Ambien. Moving on. <laughs> if you do like the Italian job and want to let us know how wrong we are... Uh, Go ahead and unfollow us. Well, please do that. Don't add us uh, about the Italian job. But if you want to talk about something else, you can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, that is going to be the best way to get a hold of us. Uh, that is where you can stay up to date on show postings, both for this show and uh, the other show that we have on the network at this time, The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, where uh, two very funny comedians talk about Christian music. Um, with uh, people from all walks of uh, life and faith backgrounds, and uh, uh, it, it's uh, it's not as mean as it sounds like it would be with comedians and Christian music. Uh, it is a genuinely generous podcast. Yes, it is a very it is incredibly sincere. Uh, yes. despite it being a secular look at Christian music, but uh, it's a very fun podcast that tries to do honestly a little bit of what we do here. Um, so if you haven't checked that out, I would definitely recommend you do that. But uh, if you want to stay up to date on that show and this show, the Good Trash Genre Cast, you're going to want to go on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, next up, we're on Facebook. You don't need to be either, though, because we never check it, and um, it's a terrible, terrible place. Although Only... I asked a question last time, and so if you do have a response to that question on the post for Spider's Men Part 2, um, do go ahead and give us an answer. Yeah. Okay, fine. If you're already on Facebook and if you can't rip that needle out of your arm, we're over there. That's facebook.com forward slash GTM. Um, if you would like to get involved with the show in uh, some small way, a very easy way for you to do that is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, uh, however you put this in your ears. Uh, it's a great way to increase the visibility of this show over on iTunes and on Stitcher Radio. It uh, means a whole, whole lot to us. We cannot uh, tell you what a help it is. So, again, if you have not done that, Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Look, you know the drill. You listen to podcasts. That's the thing that we ask you to do. Um, If you would like to give us money, you don't have to do that, but we would appreciate it. It helps uh, keep the lights on. Um, That's going to be Facebook. What are we talking about? Facebook. Get out of here. It's patreon.com forward slash GTM. That's how you give us money. That's how you get access to bonus content, such as our uh, monthly Fired Up and Pop Culture segments. Uh, All kinds of fun stuff over there. That's, again, patreon.com forward slash GTM. Last but certainly not least, 
Um, we don't advertise the show. Uh, we honestly probably wouldn't really know how to do that if we wanted to. But um, the best way to get the word out about this show is you, listener. It's uh, you telling people you like uh, about the show and trying to encourage anyone you know who uh, is into film, is into podcasts, to give the show a listen. If this show means a lot to you, if it's something that you think is worthwhile and is worth your time, um, well, hopefully you think it's also worth other people's time. So it would mean a whole heck of a lot to us if you would uh, spread the word, uh, because uh, you're why we do this, listener. Um, This is uh, coming straight from our lips to your your ears via via internets. And uh, now that the internet is... uh, no longer a free open ocean. Uh, we definitely would appreciate it if you uh, kept singing our song. Uh, that's it. We're done with this part. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalsford. I believe now it's time to play the game. And we're back with this week's game, which is Assemble Your Heist Crew. That's right. Assemble Your Heist Crew. Brought to you by The Italian Job. The Italian Job. There was a heist, and it had a crew. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to take a, a look at some actors we like and or characters we like and uh, assemble uh, a, a mismatch, hodgepodge, crossover heist crew. And uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I think so. So I'm going to go to you first, Arthur. Let's hear your crew or crews as uh, you have assembled them. All righty, all righty. My master mind, well, minds, because these two go hand in hand, uh, are going to be Danny Ocean and Rusty. Uh, you got a couple of smooth talkers, a guy, a couple of guys who know how to plan, uh, who know how to get people on their side and play their cards correctly. Uh, plus, they're a lot of fun. I mean, you need someone who's always prepared with snacks on the team because you're going to get hungry uh, when you're scouting out the job in the car, and you got to have Rusty there to give you some uh, shrimp or uh, some chips or something like that. Uh, plus, Danny's just going to be on on point to make sure everything is covered even having the guard beat him up at the end of the movie uh so they don't get figured out uh he's got everything uh he's 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 like five steps ahead of everybody um for my tech guy i'm gonna have mr arnold uh sam jackson from jurassic park nice uh some no nonsense uh getting crap done uh hopefully he uh this i I imagine this heist takes place before he uh worked for john hammond uh and he spared no expense in uh getting his tech ready uh for the job I also want to put in, you need a driver. You You need a guy that can go fast, uh, that can drive anything. And so I want Memphis Reigns behind the wheel uh, from Gone in 60 Seconds. Uh, Just put me some, look, look, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Sam Jackson, Nick Cage. That's a movie I'd see. Uh, It'd be a lot more enjoyable. Now, wait, 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 wait. Is Giovanni Ravizzi Memphis? That's his brother. Memphis is Nick. Rannell. Randall, Randall, Randall is Memphis's real Rand, name. Okay, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Randall Memphis. Okay, Rains. that's where yeah. I got confused. Randall okay, Rains. I'm with you now. Yeah, sorry, I got. I Did go. you say Roman Reigns? <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no, we don't speak Voldemort here. Um, as for my loose gun, because there's going to be a loose gun in the crew. He might turn on the crew. He might kill some people. I don't know, but he's going to be a little off in the head, and I want bats. From Baby Driver. Nice. In my heist crew, uh, just for the entertainment value. Yeah, you don't actually want him in a heist crew, but you no. definitely want him in a heist movie. I just want Jamie Foxx and George Clooney bantering back and forth. Ooh, yeah. That's what I want. And, and, and then finally, uh, for some demolitions, some heavy guns, I want Eames from Inception, Tom Hardy. Nice. Uh, just, I just want a bunch of sarcastic people just bantering. They don't even have to do a heist. I just... These are, these are the guys you can put in a room and let them talk, and it'll be entertaining for 90 minutes, uh, even if they don't pull off a heist. Uh, so that, that would be my crew. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you in terms of your heist crew? So first up, we're going to start with the mastermind, uh, as Arthur did, and it's uh, it's going to be Clive Owen's uh, Dalton Russell from Inside Man. Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, I thought o- about it, yeah. yeah. Not only does he have those soothe, smooth, dulcet tones to carry you through the narration of a film, but... Yeah, he really is just uh, two to three steps ahead of everybody in that film and uh, is just a blast to watch throughout. Um, next up on deck, we've got The Fence, who is going to be Zeus, the pawn shop owner, played by Samuel exactly. L. Jackson. Look, yeah. every every heist team needs Samuel L. Jackson involved in some capacity. I agree. I mean, it just makes everything better. Who's going to crack that safe, you wonder? It's the thief, 
we got James Kahn back in the fold. Uh, Kraken, nice. that safe. You got to have somebody there who knows their way around locked doors. I, I mean, have you guys seen Thief, by the way? I have not. I've been uh, meaning to watch it. I know it's on Hulu. Yeah, it's it's a dream. It's it's really quite wonderful. Who do we have for tech? None other than uh, Ludacris. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to have him. I can't think of his character. Look, I don't remember any of the characters. From the Fast. Names. Yeah. From the Fast franchise. I don't remember any of the characters' names except for Dom. Uh, everybody else is just their actor name. <laughs> that's, look, that's what those films are. But Ludacris is uh, really one of the constants throughout that franchise. Um, and he's always good. Every scene he has is one of the funniest scenes of those films. And uh, he's going to bring you a lot to appreciate in, in that film. It's really quite amazing how those films have turned, uh, went from point break ripoffs to uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, they're a blast. It's truly a dream. Uh, next up, you do got to have a driver. You're absolutely right, Arthur. And that's why you've got to have, you're bringing Charlize Theron back because apparently she is quite the stunt driver. You're going to have uh, Imperator Fiorosa. Uh, she's the only, nobody can steal the car. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. She's, she's got it on lock. Uh, so that's my heist crew. Um, and I can guarantee you it's going to be infinitely, infinitely more watchable <laughs> than what we had on display here. Okay, um, I made a joke earlier, and I am actually going to go with it. So this is the hyper-political, non-cinematic heist crew. Uh, so uh, this is the leftist revolutionary heist crew I am putting together. Obviously, Donald Sutherland is Karl Marx, uh, right? Uh, we've got the daughter played by Charlie Theron. That is Rosa Luxemburg. We've got the leader who is sort of trying to organize those things and put together what we're about. That is going to be your Vladimir Lenin. Your bad guy is Stalin. Wait, no, uh, who, who plays Lenin, though? Who play? Oh, who plays Lenin? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you've been oh, literally oh, Mark and Mark. I mean, Marky Mark's character. Oh, you're just going to swap. Okay. Okay, I'm just swapping everybody, right? Okay, cool. So, uh, most deaf is going to be swapped with uh, a Huey Newton from the Black Panthers. Uh, we've got to have uh, somebody who's got connections to the community, Skinny Pete. That's Chairman Mao. And, uh, right? And then finally, your tech guy who is a little skeezy. You don't really like him, but he's also very useful. That's Julian Assange. And uh, that's who no. Seth Green is. And, and, yeah, he is very skeezy. And, you don't like him at all. But he's useful. I can't wait for that remake of National Treasure when they all try to steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> so uh, you want a revolution? Hey, hey, you know, everybody wants to change the world, and that's how we're going to do it. Uh, anyhow. <laughs> that was uh, the game you decided to play with yourself. Right? All by myself. That's a very, very inside baseball leftist theory. Justin's so. favorite games, the ones he gets to play by himself. That's, yep. That's, oh, he's having a blast, though, so uh, we can't take that away from Pops. I know. I I'm having a good time. Yeah, it's Father's Day. He gets to do whatever he I wants. I know. Happy Father's Day, Pops. Uh, you know, I procreated a couple times. What can I say? Um, and you procreated the show. So uh, here well, we are. Yeah, so I've got babies everywhere uh, that I know of. The godfather of good trash. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, how does that feel? How does that feel to be responsible I, for this? This, is this baby's like seven years old almost, six years old. Yeah. It, oh, wow. That's not my it's fault. His personality's locked in at this point. <laughs> oh, it's your fault. It's, yep. it's, it's 100% your fault. <laughs> it's gone through the mirror stage. It's, yeah. You could have a DNA test. It doesn't matter. Yeah. This is your baby. No, yeah. you got to call Mari. You're man, the dad. Until yeah. I see a paternity test. <laughs> we'll call him Povich. Um, we're moving right along, though. I believe now it's time to get down to business. Well, this should be short. Uh, I think it probably will. We're back for business. That is correct. And, uh, yeah, analysis. Um, this is going to be more of a Seth Green analysis rather than a Jason Statham tantric analysis. I, <laughs> I am just going to name drop something, and then we're going to move on. Um, okay. Uh, Douglas Gomery's Cinema of Attractions, you mm -hmm. know, the sort of uh, action movie style of editing that we're looking at right now. I think that essay uh, speaks to that. We talked about that on the Fast and the Furious episode. We talked about it on the Transformers episode, and I think it's very applicable here. I don't have anything new to say about that, but um, if I'm going to drop a bit of theory somewhere, check out Doug Gomery. Check out the idea of the Cinema of Attractions uh, and Spectacle. There's some Spectacle uh, stuff that's going on as well with Eisenstein, so he sort of plays off Eisenstein's sort of montage theory in the way in which those action scenes are edited. And uh, these are very, very well-edited action scenes, and I think it does some similar kinds of things. But I got nothing new, really, to say. It just does it very badly. It, this does that, except for the middle. Um, except for, like, <laughs> most of it. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's a, kind of a poor example, but in, in, in order to just name drop something theoretical, I'm doing that right now. I'm done with that now. 
So, okay. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say something the way you did well, that. Well, I didn't want to cut you off. Oh, okay. Uh, well, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, let's talk a little bit about the history of the heist film. Yes. yes. Uh, we haven't done a lot of heist movies. We've done, uh, we the first one, I think, was in our early days when we did A Fish Called Wanda, and then we did Baby Driver and Gone in 60 Seconds. Uh, they've been more car chasey heist type movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is one of the real first, like, money heist things like, that yeah. we've done. Uh, but the heist film itself is really a... A subgenre that really kind of dates back in, into the early Hollywood days. I mean, a lot of westerns kind of revolve around this idea, you know, mm-hmm. robbing the coach, robbing the train, and doing that whole thing. Um, and it kind of comes in and out of fashion in the seventies. You know, Dog Day Afternoons a bit of a heist film and things like that. And then, uh, well, then you've even got yeah subgenres within the subgenre, right? You've yeah. got Dog Day Afternoon and Inside Man, which are heist films that are just about the heist and the mechanics of the heist and you know what happens. Obviously, there's some. Um, some narrative trickery, uh, you know, in Inside Man where we're talking about the heist after the fact. But, you're, I mean, you're right, Arthur, to, to name check Dog Day, which I think does open up another slew of heist films just in terms of subgenres within the subgenre. Yeah. It's a genre that's certainly evolved over the years. I mean, this is a remake of a, what, a 70s, 60s film? Uh, uh, late 60s, I believe. Yeah, with uh, Michael, uh, King. Michael King. Thank you. Um, and also, is, is Get Carter, is that a heist or is that just a cop film? It's more of a cart cop film. Okay. Cart, cart film? A Carter film. It's a cart film. <laughs> it's, it's a Get a, Carter it, film. It's about fish, not yeah. called Wanda. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, it's it's a it's really a genre that's evolved over the years, and, and, and it really seemed to kind of. I, I was watching this, and I kept thinking a lot of Ocean's Eleven, which hits in you know two thousand one, so it's right before this. I feel like that really kind of re-kickstarted this kind of heist, uh, you know, movement or whatever this little cycle that kind of happened, and and so I just. As a heist film, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying in my uh, anal- or review, is that it, it, it really feels like that kind of – all the ideas are there. All of the elements are there. They're just not executed well. And yeah. it, it really feels like, like you said, that kind of paint-by-numbers style. But I, I, I wonder, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if we think of all these kind of heist films, um, if there's any kind of social social element there that – the the genre as a whole is kind of you know when I think back to like a Bonnie and a Clyde or whatever mm-hmm. you know there's um, there's two parts of that you know the new Hollywood and the the style and it what it's saying about uh, just the mode of filmmaking itself but even the idea of uh, you know with westerns and and things like that the idea of you know heist films were about getting back at the bank and getting back at the the financiers and that kind of redistribution of wealth right, right. to the poor and, and that kind of Robin Hood idea. Yeah, I thought about that a lot actually with this movie because you know what heist movies tend to do, and and crime movies in general have a lot of this going on with them. They they make bad guys into good guys, right? And so our protagonists are all thieves; they're all criminals, right? Which is technically people who are living outside the law. And in the sort of classical Western white hats, black hats, these are all black hats that we're dealing with. And so we have the blackest hat, who is Edward Norton's character, who is. In it for the money, just the money, want all the money. And the and doesn't uh, even know what to do with it. Doesn't even know what to do with it. It yeah, lacks creativity and imagination. We'll get to that <sighs> maybe here in a little bit as a weird sort of plot point. But uh, the other characters are also there to just get tons and tons of money. And uh, but they um, have a human face, you know. They care about books or literature, or Marky Mark finally finds love or whatever. And that's you know the sort of difference between them. And I thought, well, what other criminals are all about making lots and lots of money? And they try to advertise themselves as you know, I'm not like them. I'm the version with the with a good face. And I just thought, well, it's it's obviously bankers. I was going to say Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley would be a good example. Wall Street would be another example, which is sort of the same thing. High finance criminals who are uh, doing what they can to make. Make as much money as possible, and the way the PR works for it is simply that we've got those who are just in it for the money with no creativity that are vapid and vacuous, and that we can sort of exclude that, right? We can denounce that and uh, set that aside as a separate category, and then we have the good venture capitalists. We've got the good corporate finance investor. We've got the good Silicon Valley executive. That's the narrative that we're in, and the heist movie sort of uh, – in a way, mirrors that sort of strange uh, economic narrative because uh, we're talking about uber wealthy, massive amounts of money being moved here uh, in these groups of people. But and, and, and going ahead and just sort of aligning, yes, it's kind of a bad thing, yes. But really, if you got to know these guys, these guys are not bad guys. I mean, there's guys like Ed Norton out there, but there's good guys like Marky Mark. And so you just want to be a super, super rich, you know, thief like Marky Mark, not a super, super rich thief like. 
Edward Norton. Well, and I, I think what Arthur got at with the, the history and Dustin's kind of elaborate on, right? I mean, th- this is the a very old narrative within the storytelling goes all the way back to folklore. I mean, Robin Hood, as you've already mentioned, the Scarlet and Pimpernel, like, uh, fuck, spring Jack, these um, lovable uh, miscreants, right, who are bad just like the real bad guys, the kings and rulers are also bad, but then you have these bad guys who work against them, who act against them. Um, but the motivations remain the same, right, as Dustin has alluded to. A lot of the times it is still about the accumulation of stuff for yourself, Um, Now, I think with Robin Hood narratives, that becomes a little bit different, right? Uh, But then you still have uh, the Jesse James archetype, which is still about the accumulation of wealth for oneself. Um, It just gets looped into that Robin Hood folklore. Yeah. And I think that's what is interesting about heist narratives, but also heist films as a whole, is this idea, as Dustin has said, they're the good bad guys, as it were. Uh, and if you are working outside of oppressive systems, does that make you a good guy for working outside of those systems and getting one over on the big guy? Not really. I, I wonder about people who, who are who will, driving on the roads in Los Angeles. Right, exactly. I mean, and that's that's the thing. At the end of the day, the people who will end up paying for uh, destabilization are the people who cannot afford to for their lives to be destabilized. People with money can afford to have their lives destabilized because they have money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that is the interesting thing about playing with these these narratives of uh, the lovable outlaw and the lovable miscreant. I, I think there is often much more uh, going on, as you alluded to, Dustin, that um, we, we create a narrative of... of virtuous lawlessness and don't get me wrong I, I i am not immune to the the narrative of of the the good outlaw but at the end of the day the bank can afford to stay afloat it's uh right and that's that's always we're not here for your money we're here for the bank's money yeah but the people who need to use the bank are here and they're gonna get shot when the cops yeah. show up and you guys have a shootout uh and i think that that is the the interesting narrative thread to tease out right is the idea that uh there's going to be collateral damage for your your lawlessness. And at the end of the day, it just continues to perpetuate a system of uh, acquisition through force. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and not, not all heist films have that same no, sort of sure. feel there. But this particular film really does. It just These are just different kinds of people who want lots of money. But we want lots of money for kind of better reasons. So that's how we're good guys. And uh, that is, again, uh, a very uninteresting and sort of uninspired bit of script writing. And, 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 and that the sort of necessary uh, symptom of that is it becomes something emblematic of, you know, high finance capital or yeah. whatever. It's, it's turning Jesse James into Robin Hood, as yeah. we said. The, the, yeah, the, the, the best heist films, I think a lot of, you know, uh, Butch, and, uh, Butch and Sandance or uh, Point Break or uh, uh, even Dog Day Afternoon, you know, these movies use the heist to really set up something much larger as, as like a social commentary to really kind of comment on some, you know, whatever it is, part of society or culture. And I, I think that's where this one goes most off-road and goes really off the, the track because it misses that point. Well, and I think the point that you make, the, the films that you just referenced, Arthur, those are stories about outsiders. Those are stories about people who really do not have any other choice, yeah. right? Uh, Butch but, and Sundance. Maybe Butch and so Sundance, maybe not so but, but Eve Bodie, not so much, but he's still an outsider, yeah. right? Uh, especially uh, Pacino's character in Dog Day Afternoon, which is based on a real person. Uh, I mean, this is somebody who you know is trying to get gender uh confirmation surgery for their their lover um that's not a thing in the 70s that society is going to accept and that's yeah. certainly not a thing that's cheap now and it definitely wasn't cheap in the 70s when there were much fewer doctors who could perform such a such a surgery um and that again it's turning jesse james and robin jesse james wasn't a good guy no uh, robin hood Probably might have been uh, if he was real, um, if legends are true. And I think Arthur name-checking those stories that are better, as you said, the reason I think those are better stories is because they are about outsiders. They are about people who are choosing to say, I see what you're telling me I have to do to survive in this society, and I reject that, and I'm going to try and do something else, which is kind of the opposite of the crew here. And I think that's the problem with narratives of gentlemen thieves, right? It's like, yeah. you've got money already, dude. What are you, you're just looking to get off on car chases, my man? Why are you doing that? Yeah. So there's something real problematic there. There's another th- observation I had, Arthur and uh, Dalton, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, is that this film sort of uh, hinges on a moment in which uh, Charlize Theron, and this movie is all about technology, 
right, up into a point. And it and it, it gets itself very dated because of that, right? Because the high pinnacle of, you know, venture uh, movement in the tech industry as far as websites is Napster, right? Which is such a dated and gross. <laughs> it was dated at the time, and they even referenced that it's yeah. Napster's illegal by the time this movie yeah. came out. Yeah, but whatever on the Napster thing. But technology is massively, massively important. But what ends up happening is that um, they end up facing a safe that they weren't expecting, and Shirley Theron has to like you know set aside all of her technological tools and open the thing by feel. This is a thing you see in lots of cinema, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately. You know, it, I, Rocky Five would be another example. Yeah. Of the same thing. We've got the Rocky Four. Uh, Rocky Four. Dolph Lundgren and yeah, yeah. All... Dolph Lundgren's got all the science machines and his HGH. Right, and, and uh, Rocky just has a uh, snow, snow and a big piece. Good of old meat carcasses. Yeah, it is. You know, carrying you know that kind of stuff around, and it, that's what ends up winning the day. It is uh, movies in which you put technology against magic, right? And magic ends up winning always the day. Um, and I, I don't really know quite what is going on with that, but there is a definite tendency in Hollywood narrative cinema to go back to uh, something that is low tech. Uh, to also sometimes go back to you're going to need the old hand, you know, the old expert, the old master come in one last time because they just have some sort of touch, some sort of something, some sort of mystique that they can sort of apply to the situation. And that's going to be, you know, the thing that's going to make it all work. Uh, that all you young bucks and all you young ones and all your young stuff and new technology is, is always going to fall through. And I don't know what it is, what particular cultural itch this is trying to scratch, but it's a thing that's going on a lot. I, I think maybe it speaks to our, our fear of obsolescence, right? I, I think it speaks to the idea that we're afraid robots are going to replace us. Mm. Um, and it might come from those the artistic sensibilities of the people who make films, right? Because the one thing that robots can't do yet is create art. Uh, they can reproduce art, absolutely. They can be used in the creation of art, but they can't do it on their own. Um, and uh, I think there is something to the idea that there, there has to be a human. There's something ineffable about human ability and about the human mind and our ability to learn skills and to better ourselves through our own determination and grit uh, and um, – ability to, uh, to learn uh, again uh, Charlize Theron does it by touch by just knowing about safes Rocky and Rocky 4 uh, is able to defeat Dolph Lundgren just by training harder uh, not by the use of fancy technologies um, and, and there's something interesting there uh, especially as we have a society that is you know becoming more and more uh, on the the cutting edge of tech and again look I'm the first person to make fun of knuckleheads in Silicon Valley reinventing public transportation and acting like it's a new idea. But there is something to be said for the ever pushing forward of technology. Um, you know, as computer components get smaller and cheaper, the pervasiveness throughout society of tech uh, becomes a legitimate concern. And I, I think it's been going on throughout film for quite a while. Uh, because it's something that scared us for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the way back to the Industrial Revolution before the advent of film. And I think that's a big reason we see it coming up in film, because this has been something we've been afraid of for as long as film has existed. Yeah, I, I was going to speak to kind of that point. You know, I, I think it really, you know, if you look at, especially with action film or, comedy, you know, kind of these genre movies, uh, really speak to a, a sort of blue-collar, middle-class uh audience and I, I think that idea of the industrialization of everything moving away from manual labor into more robotics or computer um, uh, labor I, I guess you know uh, those kind of that loss of jobs or whatever that kind of societal feel, fear that's really been there probably you know for the last 60 or 70 years at least uh, as far as talking cinema um, I, I think it might speak to some to that you know this this fear of being becoming obsolete like you mentioned and so I think there's part of it maybe just a uh, an audience fear you know that kind yeah. of that that type of middle class fear of uh, being phased out and, and things like that and then you know realizing the the manual way was better or something like that well and I, I think it speaks to the interesting ways in which um, the uh, the Blue-collar sensibilities overlap with artistic sensibilities. Uh, I, I think uh, even though they are two groups that you often find opposed to each other, um, not literally, but 
pitted against each other in you know cultural narratives, right? The uh, the blue collar guy who just wants to come home and watch sitcoms versus the artist who wants to you know throw paint at a canvas all day. These are still two these are still two ideas of a person that have a lot in common if you just think about them as nuts and bolts, right? They are people who, uh, if you try to sum up ideas, see that there is an irreplaceability to the human condition, right? Uh, Regardless of what they are finding irreplaceable, uh, they find something irreplaceable about humanity and about human experience, whether it is the expression of the human heart through art or the expression of, you know, human labor through creation. You know, I, I think... Both are groups, whether it is the laborer or the artist, that have more over, overlap than we give them credit for in a lot of our narratives. Yeah, uh, And I think Arthur's right, though. A lot of art is created for uh, – while art should be created for everyone, I think a lot of genre and pop art is created for uh, the middle class to some extent. Um, just by talking about the, the history of American cinema especially and this, the history of American genre cinema specifically, uh, I, I think that maybe is where it comes from, Arthur, is that kind of interesting overlap both in the kinds of people that make uh, genre art and the people who consume that art. Yeah, and I think there's a thing that's going on. You're reading it uh, more positively than I was at first, you know, this idea that it's, it's a fear of being replaced and yeah. that kind of stuff. But I, I think there's a, a certain nostalgia element that goes on with it too is that you're going to miss this old stuff. But I think there's also this idea that I don't have to adapt to the new world I'm living in, mm-hmm. that I am going to still remain uh, um, you know, irreplaceable in some sense, and uh, that if I don't keep up with what's going on right now, that somehow still someone will have to call me back up off the bench because it's going to be vital that I know how to run the ham radio to keep the aliens from killing us all or whatever. I, I think it's five to ten years ago I would have been more in your camp, though. Yeah. I, I think as we you know move further, closer and closer to what seems like an inevitable collapse of the tech industry, just like we had with the uh, the internet bubble mm-hmm. and the early aughts. I mean, you're talking about, uh, look, I, I'm going to do my best to not name check somebody that could sue us, but there are a lot of companies in the Valley that run at a loss yeah. that are only propped up by venture capital, as you mentioned. They are operating without a profit margin. I mean, all right, let's talk about Netflix. So I don't have to name any names that are notorious for being assholes. Uh, Netflix is propped up by creditors. Mm-hmm. They are desperate to get back in the black, and they think they're going to do that through all this original content. And I, again, I think I would have agreed with you, Dustin, earlier about the, this incessant need for us to say, oh, I don't have to change, I don't have to evolve, uh, and spit in the face of technology. I, I think I would have seen your point in your reading a little bit more closely, but over the last few years, you see... Uh, a lot of narratives, a lot of people who don't understand technology saying, well, these people who understand technology seem to have it figured out. We should give them all of the money. Yeah. And it becomes clearer and clearer that there aren't that many ideas. It's just a knowledge of coding. Uh, and these people who happen to know how to code, while they have a valuable skill that is important for the future, they don't know everything. And they certainly don't know what to do with all that fucking money sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm not really talking about as, as much of an economic model, as much as just a way to approach life that you can sort of isolate yourself gotcha. and say, and I live in my sort of analog bubble in a mm-hmm. digital world, you know, whatever that version of it is. And I, it seems to me that both impulses are wrong, that if you want to go to this fully digitized, then that sort of, again, Orwellian nightmare is waiting for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something to be really fearful of. But I don't think that if you just isolate yourself off in your little enclave of whatever analog version of life that you prefer which is a different which is the digital version to the analog version before that if we're going to really get you know long scale you know geologic with our time frame here yeah um but whatever it is you're doing is that no what you need to do is that we do need to make sure that we hang on to um old methods of doing things and we might want to hang on to old technologies and keep understanding and teaching others how to do those things but we cannot do that to the detriment of also adapting ourselves to new technologies and new methods and ways of thinking and new understandings and new you know those sort of things that it's got to be always a both end and that you cannot just only have your you know your uh, bleeding edgers and then you've got your anchors that you the best place to be is not to be that and what cinema tends to do is got we've got 
got all these, you know, bleeding edgers, right, cutting edgers doing these amazing things, and they're going to stop short unless the anchor comes along with them. And, you know, the anchor shows up and does the thing that none of them know how to do. And I, I want to say, well, yeah, but the, that doesn't mean that we all need to be anchors. That, that's where the inspiration is like Charlie Theron saying, yeah. needs to embrace the organic instead of the technological. It's like, no, just take the organic with you as you embrace the technological. Gotcha. I see where you're coming you from. Know? Um, I think an interesting place, we, we normally open here uh, with uh, a little bit of uh, production and studio stuff, but I think uh, this might be a fun place to close this week, is to talk a little bit about um, the development of this film and films like it. Uh, what gets remade? Why do we choose to remake yeah. certain things? Um, what seems like a good idea? Uh, and I think that might be a fun place to, to close out. Um, I, I do, uh, the only tidbit I, I want to mention is apparently uh, Edward Norton was a terror to work with on this film. That seems to be a... Uh, a uh, consistent um, Yeah, consistent yeah. Uh, character thing for him. As, yeah. uh, as far as I can tell, I, I think there were some uh, gossip and hearsay about that on the Incredible Hulk set as well, yeah. where he was very difficult to work with. He wanted to redo his, rewrite his scenes and all this kind of American stuff. American History X being another very yeah. famous example. I guess the, the reasoning here was uh, after Primal Fear, he had a three-picture contract signed with Paramount. And he kept rejecting scripts, rejecting scripts, and they finally twisted his arm into doing this movie and uh, was just a turd to everyone. Apparently he's nice to Wes Anderson. No, that's apparently. But yeah. I think that goes a long way that to finding what doesn't work about this film. And if you have an employee at a place of work, because make no mistake, at the end of the day, a film set is a place of business and a place of work. If you've got one person who is integral to making everything work, I would say the villain of a film, the person playing that villain has a pretty important role, uh, both in the narrative of, fil of the film, but also at the workplace. If you have somebody making it a not fun place to be, it's going to hurt the final product yeah. by a lot. Um, do either of you know anything about the original Italian job? I know, Dustin, you've seen I've it. I've seen it, do and you, I don't remember it being all that remarkable. Do we know anything about how well it performed? I, I don't. I think it was a massive success. I think it was very successful. Okay. And and, and that name recognition is what played that off, right? So uh, to do, say, okay, Italian job, we remake the Italian job. There's going to be people who remember that movie. It's going to be recognizable. And, again, we can tie in that marketing campaign with Minnie Cooper. And that's what I was about to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. But um, that's the, the, and this pattern lately in Hollywood of remakes and sequels, and we and I mean, everybody bemoans this stuff all the time. It's been going on forever. Yeah, and it, but yeah, it has been going on forever. And it is exhausting, but the, 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 the motivation is, as always, it's a sure thing, right? And so you make connections, you know, whenever you can. And so, for instance, you know, even as early as the 1960s, we've got Bruce Lee in Fists of Fury, his second film after um, uh, The Big Boss, right? And uh, they rename in the United States the Chinese Connection. Why? Because the French Connection made a ton of money. And uh, it, it's the same sort of that, – that's just sort of a naming change. It's not a remake or anything in, in any way. It's nothing similar to the other, yeah. the, the other film at all. But we do that. And so Disney's remaking in live action all their uh, you know animated stories. Why? Because it's a guaranteed audience. It's guaranteed audience, but I think there's also this idea. You know, I, I think back. Uh, ben Hur's a great example, right? Ben Hur's mm -hmm. a very old movie. It, right. it, it was Classic. initially a silent film, and then it gets remade into the Charlton Heston classic that everybody knows, right? Uh, and I think part of that is new technologies. Uh, new technologies develop. New technologies allow you to do new things, implement new ideas. Um, you know, with uh, Charlton Heston's, we're I think we're in color, right? We're Technicolor at that point. Mm -hmm, yeah, uh, we got sound, uh, so that's two drastic changes from the initial, right? As opposed to the Demille original. I think it's Cecil B. Demille who did uh, the original. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. Uh, um, long time ago. Yes. Um, but uh, I think that also plays a part in it, right? I mean, you look at a movie, uh, maybe a director grows up watching that movie, loving that movie, and they can say. Oh, we've got new technology. What could we do with this film to make it new, or, or could we make this you know message relevant or positive? Uh, X Men's another one. X Men, you know, uh, as as far as adaptations go, uh, X Men initially debuts in the '60s as this kind of civil rights uh, analog, right? Mm -hmm. And when you play that '99, you can you can twist that, and you can still do you know race, or you can do uh, LGBT uh, issues, you know, things like that. It, it, it's something. Uh, it's a story that can be evolved or adapted for uh, a different audience and still be relevant. And I think that's the thing uh, when you have a film like The Italian Job or, or Gone in 60 Seconds, right? I mean, mm -hmm. these are both kind of – Both remakes, yeah. Yeah, both in the same kind of boat, both remakes of 60, 70 movies um, dealing with cars or whatever. But um, 
I, I think at that point it's, it is the name recognition or it's, you know, could we just do this and do it, update it for a new audience? It's just putting a fresh coat of paint on the idea and reselling it or whatever, rebranding it for a new generation. Right. Uh, and so I think that, you know, I think there are several different factors. Uh, it's, it's finding a story, uh, that could be updated and still speak to societal issues at the time, or it's just wanting to implement new technologies. And, and, and I think that's where a lot of the Disney stuff, obviously a, it, these movies are going to make money. Yes. Right. Lion King is a known brand. Beauty and the Beast is a known brand. The Dumbo movie. Did you just see yeah. the trailer for that? Yeah. Tim Burton's Dumbo. Yeah. Tim Burton's Dumbo. Name above make, the title. Going to make a ton of money. And, and, and sometimes, you know, I, I, I think the, the better moves is a thing like Dumbo. Dumbo's not in the same camp as, let's say, Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty. Dumbo is known, but it's not that kind of gold standard Disney film. It's it's a known quantity. It's more like that Robin Hood camp. Uh, whereas, um, oh, goodness gracious, I was going somewhere. Uh, oh, uh, the other one is uh, Peach Dragon, right? That gets remade oh, last yeah. year. And, and that's another one that's like, I, I, I kind of like that idea where you go out and you find... Uh, the movies that aren't quite highly as regarded as a classic and try to update it or make a new uh, uh, rebrand it and do a new thing with it. And, and so I think uh, there are a few different factors as far as finding those properties to rebrand or adapt or remake. Um, there's, you know, talk of another Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, you know, that's kind of coming out now, doing a prequel with it, you know. Uh, and so there's that part of it, you know, also just trying to find new elements, you know, maybe coming at it from a different direction or coming at it from a different character standpoint or, or something like that. And I, I don't think the remake or the retread is all together a bad thing. No, no. definitely not. I mean, The Thing is a wonderful remake of yeah. The or Thing from Outer Space. Cape Fear. Cape Fear, yeah. Uh, which is a different movie. I mean, that's the thing. It is definitely a remake, but mm. it's a different kind of movie. The reason I really wanted to bring this up is because the Italian job did not make a whole lot of money. It made enough that they almost made a sequel, The Brazilian Job, but that film ended up becoming Fast Five, actually, uh, interestingly enough. Huh, but it sense. didn't make such giant piles of money that they fast-tracked a sequel. It was like, well, maybe we could make a sequel. It wasn't a demand. And I think that's the thing that's really interesting, is we choose to make films that people kind of vaguely remember. I was not able to find any box office info on The Italian Job from 69. It is very well regarded as a, an extremely good British genre film from the era. It's still got a lot of clout in terms of the BFI has it listed as one of their best films. But it, it, you know, it isn't known for being a gargantuan box office hit. Mm. I, I tried to do some research on that. So that's what's interesting to me. It's yep. not like it, it's a film that had cultural ubiquity. It was just kind of respected as a heist film. And that's the thing that's interesting to me is remaking a film that you don't even know is a sure thing and turns out not to have been a sure thing. Right. Yep. And that I, I think that comes down to the Mini Cooper thing. I really do. I think remaking a film where you could get Mini to give you a bunch of money to kind of offset the cost of production is where those choices get made. Uh, and I think you're right, Arthur. If there is a reasonable artistic merit to remaking a film, I think that's where you get viability. That's where you get good films that are interesting retellings of stories that still have some sort of cultural relevance as opposed to those calculated financial decisions, which there is no calculus to what films are going to make money. I mean, right. you, you can have Netflix say they've got the algorithm cracked all, all the live long day. And yeah, sometimes you get it right, but not always. I think there are plenty of examples, this one especially, but the Ben-Hur remake from a couple of years ago was, I'm sure the studio thought it was a safe bet when they went into production and it took a massive shit at the box office and cost them a bunch of money. So it is very interesting to me, um, the idea that there are any sure things, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's all, you know, nobody knows nothing, Jack Warner once said. And, or is it Louis B. Mayer? It might have been Louis B. Mayer that said nobody knows nothing. And that's true. Uh, we don't know. And you, you'll just have to see what ends up happening. And uh, this particular uh, remake was less than successful. So uh, without any sort of climacticism whatsoever, we come to the end of our show in, w in which we render a verdict about Shell for Trash. Similar to this movie, which has a very anticlimactic epilogue. Correct. So, um, what else are you going to watch instead? Uh, what, what rather, what instead? No, you're, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. What else? Yeah, that is, yeah, else or instead. What are we watching instead? Yeah, instead. What instead are you watching from the Italian job, Arthur? Uh, instead of the Italian job, I, I already named dropped this one. You're going to watch Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, which has that a lot of, I mean, uh, Danny Ocean and Rusty aren't hurting is for Ocean's money. Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. It is. These guys aren't hurting for money. Uh, but their intentions feel a lot more pure. I mean, Honestly, Danny's just doing this because he's mad and jealous. I mean, that feels a lot more motivated than anything that happens in this film. 
And Soderbergh has the style and skill to pull it off with a great cast that he plays to all of their strengths. Um, instead of uh, the Italian job, you're going to watch Gotten in 60 Seconds. Because while it's not a great movie, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a great cast. It's a great ensemble with uh, Nick Cage, Robert Duvall, uh, Chi McBride, uh, Scott Kahn, at uh, all. Uh, Giovanni Ribisi. Uh, it's just uh, oh, uh, the, the one Doctor Who that everybody forgets about. Uh, Eccleston. Eccleston. Eccleston, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I never forget about him because he's amazing <laughs> on the leftovers. But, um, but yeah, you're watching that. Uh, and hearkening uh, back to Dustin's analysis about the financial and the richer get a richer, and I, I think you watch The Big Short. I think that is a, a, a important piece here. Definitely a heist film. Yeah, it's definitely a heist it is. movie. It's structured I, like it. I kept thinking about it when Dustin was talking yeah. about that, so I'm glad you mentioned it, Arthur. And then finally, my last one. Uh, oh, and this kind of goes back with Gone in 60 Seconds because Gone in 60 Seconds plays with that idea of the old versus the new. I mean, that's the whole thing is you got yeah. the old crew and the new crew and you got those uh, kind of clashes of style. Uh, but another one, and it's real endearing, it's real heartbreaking, uh, it's Robot and Frank uh, with Frank Langella uh, from like 2011 I remember you liked that or 12. I think 11 or 12. Yeah, yeah it, it's, a, it's a fantastic piece. It's, it's heart-wrenching and it's about this kind of aged-out uh, – thief um, um who has to try to figure out how to incorporate his new uh technology this robot living assistant who's helping him you know he's uh old and he's kind of breaking down and uh it's about that relationship between him and this robot and, and uh what that plays out like and so those are my insteads for the italian job hey what are you going to watch instead of the italian job from now on oh you're Oscar? just you're just assuming that i'm going to throw it in the trash yeah yeah you you assumed correctly um what would i recommend instead well um how about uh, this film and its uh predecessor with uh michael kane are both famous uh for their driving scenes why don't you go check out that one heist movie that we've already talked about that's very famous for its driving scenes, Baby Driver. Yes. It's a more fun heist film far and away, has a lot more going on, and was a much more fun conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago that we had about that. So I would definitely far and away recommend that instead. Uh, go watch Three Kings, a better heist I movie featuring Three Kings too. A nice. heist movie featuring uh, yep. Mark Wahlberg uh, that has a lot more to say. You guys than have this officially film. stolen all my stuff now, but go ahead. I'm sure you'll pull some weird existential art avant-garde film out of your butt. Yeah, you'll I figure know, it out. I have one. Uh, go on. Well, maybe I'll. I haven't seen Three Kings in a couple of years now, and uh, I just remember liking it a whole lot. Uh, it's been a while, so I don't have a lot to say about it other than it's very, very good. Uh, and it's a, a film by, um, oh, my God. David O. Russell. Thank you. It's a David O. Russell film that I actually like quite a bit. Yep. I love all of David O. Russell's, like, early films. I've really grown to. Then he hit a point in his later <sighs> career that you just. I've just grown to have disdain for him as yeah. a filmmaker. And I and I hear he's kind of a jerk on set. Yeah, apparently so. he's a fucking. He yelled at Lily Tomlin. Yeah. Who fucking yells at Lily Tomlin? David O. Russell. Who does that? Yeah, David Russell. Um, but, yeah, I would definitely watch Three Kings, though, because it's quite good. And, uh, again, a better Mark Wahlberg heist movie. Um, I would also recommend Atomic Blonde, a much better Charlize Theron action movie. Uh, and, finally, I would recommend my favorite heist movie, probably Inside Man, uh, which has already come up. Um, and yeah, I think it might be my favorite heist movie because, spoiler alert, what's better than a heist movie that's used to get one over on escape Nazi war criminals? Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty badass. Noise. Yep. So I was going to say Ocean's Eleven. I totally agree. I was going to say Gone in 60 Seconds. I totally agree. I think both those movies are much better. Much you, could, you, you could suggest the originals. I was going to say Fast Five, honestly, as well, um, which was yeah. apparently going to be the Brazilian job. We yeah. didn't even know that bit of history I about it. I just learned that recently. Which yeah. is interesting. And Fast Five, I think, would definitely be uh, a worthy thing to watch. And then in terms of just – I want to talk about Three Kings for a second also as a, something to watch instead. Uh, because it is a movie in which there is definitely motivation and greed and all that sort of stuff that's um, w making these people want to take the gold and then there's a realization about what's going on with those who cannot who don't have the access to that who don't have the privilege for that sort of stuff and what's going on in you know saddam's iraq and uh, the motivation for keeping the gold changes and it, it's a much more interesting film about that sort of heistness and greedness that um tends to you know um get a uh, little washed over in films like uh, The Italian Job. Really good Ice Cube performance, too. Ice Cube is yeah. so good. Um, yeah. Man, yeah. Super, good movie. Super good. Uh, Close-up shot of a lung filling up with fluid. Yeah. Um, also. Oh, God, forgot about that. There's some great yeah. stylistic flourishes in that man. film. Mm -hmm. They're so good that at the start of the DVD copy of the film, there, you know, there's usually that this film has been formatted yeah. to fit your screen. It, there's a, a disclaimer about how uh, there, there's some camera stuff and some picture and color stuff that... Uh, 
do not try to adjust your set, basically. Nice. It's very That's funny. Cool. It's going to look weird because it's supposed to. Yeah, it's very funny to me. That's awesome. Yeah. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Um, your syllabus just got shorter and then much longer because uh, we just took something off. Hey, we did you a favor. You don't need to watch did. the Italian job. Don't Correct. do it. Don't do it. Uh, watch the original. I would say that. I, mean, I think it's worth watching. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I, so I, I, oh, Michael Caine. That's it instead. Yeah, watch it instead. You know, um, but it's not – it didn't blow my skirt up, but it's, you know – not bad. So um, that's all I have to say about that. Moving right along, though, um, I understand that we're going to do one more show. In fact, we're going to do several more shows. We can't end on this note. No. We have to go oh, out okay. strong, right? That's it. Okay. So we, we've really been playing with this idea. We want to do a marathon. It's been a so, while. Yeah. You know, it's been oh, a few oh, weeks. A one-movie marathon? Uh, yeah. We're going to do a one-movie marathon. Okay. Excellent. Uh, just like we did with Spider-Man. I'm all in. Um, we, we're kicking around different ideas. You know, do blockbusters or do an actor marathon. You know, there's a lot of stuff we like to do here. Uh, but we were thinking summer. We were thinking, what's great with summer? Youth. Yeah. Coming of age. Uh-huh. So we are just going to go through some coming of age films. We haven't even decided how long this marathon's going to yeah, be. Yeah, we, I've rattled off like 20 movies, so we, we don't know what's going to happen. It could be as long as six weeks. It could take us into Shocktober. Who knows? Yeah, we might just do. We'll end on it and then move it. into Shocktober. <laughs> right. I thought you said we were going to do one movie. Nope, you got at least six more shows in you, bud. Okay, at least four, potentially six. Well, what am I doing next? Well, we're going to go back to the 50s, and we're going to talk about four boys who just want to see a dead body when we look at... That's pretty spot on beatboxing art. I'm impressed. really good. Yeah, yeah. I can't hit the falsetto. I'm not coming yeah, in. Yeah. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sing either. Well, yeah, I but stand I, by I, me. Yeah, I the wish track. I could. Yeah, I can't hit that note for you, Arthur. That's yeah, okay. Sorry. It's okay, guys. We're going to do stand by me, and I'm. Uh, I've never seen this. Film. I am very excited for Dalton to watch this. Uh, I, I've seen it, and I like it a lot. I think there's some nostalgia there for me and Dustin. Maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm excited. We get to see uh, a chunky Jerry O'Connell. Uh, we get to see Will Wheaton. We get to see uh, the beloved and gone too soon, uh, River Phoenix, and the beloved in. Uh, Having a really hard time, Corey Haim. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a great cast. It is a great it's, cast. It's a solid, strong cast of young men. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, we're gonna talk about boyhood and coming of age and summer and leeches, dead bodies uh, and bullies. Uh, Grief. Yeah. It's all there. Growing up. Reiner. Uh, and then we're going to pair it with uh, Itumama Tambien. Uh, probably. <laughs> Very, very likely. We probably will. So, um, because it's all about that conversation, and that conversation I'm very excited to be having, uh, unlike the conversation. Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to say that unlike the conversation. I, I'm glad we had the conversation that we had about the Italian job. I just want to watch it again. Uh, but it's been a good time. It's what we do. It's why we do what we do. So you keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genre Cast, brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network. For all things Good Trash, head on over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro music is, as always, an uh, original piece by friend of the show Aaron Rodgers, and our outro piece is a performance of Money by The Velvet Revolver, originally written by David Gilmore and Roger Waters of Pink Floyd fame. Money.